have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files RPG podcast. Talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. This is the second part of episode 14, which was all about fanzines, PBMs and the fan scene back in the early to mid-80s here in the UK. It features extra bits that didn't quite fit in the first part. It's a big one. Take your time. Regular breaks with tea and hobnob biscuits will get you through it. It's like one of those elaborate handmade inserts you find in a zine that's been a labour of love for someone, but you can't quite make head nor tail of it. The first part was really well received. I'm always grateful of feedback, as you know, but there's been a genuine outpouring of fond memories of PBMs and zines that people used to play. We even got a mention from Mike Lewis, one of the editors of Dragon Lords alongside Ian Marsh, who was the man who launched a thousand zines, thanks to his regular column in Imagine magazine. The appearance of listings in the mainstream encouraged dozens of RPG players to make a zine of their own. It's gratifying to think that our humble podcast could have a similar effect. We've inspired at least one, The Bones of the Lost God, is a PBM zine that's been created by Phil Cooper, handcrafted with distinctive, quirky and high-quality artwork. It's following in the footsteps of the Gladiators Gazette, the PBM zine I wrote about in the first Grognard Files zine last year. Check out Phil's Twitter timeline, at Rumours Matrix, to track the progress of the project, or visit his website, There's a link in the show notes. So, what have we got in this file? Ian Marsh, the editor of Dragon Lords and White Dwarf, faces the Games Master screen to relate some of his thoughts and anecdotes from his career in gaming. At Daily Dwarf returns with more about Dagon magazine. This time he goes all Melvin Bragg and discusses literary criticism. Don't worry, the tone takes a nosedive when my esteemed co-host, Blythe, joins me in the attic of Dirk Towers to dip into the post bag and look back and share fanzines recommended by our listeners. Finally, we're putting together the second Grognard Files zine so you can find out how you can get your copy at the end of the pod. I can hear flaps clapping together. A gentle thud. The post has arrived. A new grog pod has come through the letterbox and landed on your mat. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Games Master Screen with Ian Marsh. Ian Marsh returns to face the Games Master Screen. I'm going to put this flimsy uh, partition between us and I have an autobiographical table that I'm going to roll on, apparently at random. Okay, are you ready for this, uh, Ian? I'm ready. I okay. have my D6 ready to counter you. Okay, here goes. I'm rolling on a on a percentile dice, so uh, here goes. We've got a zero one. 
So that's a, that's a critical, very critical. It's a, an acrostic, acoustic acrostic. So uh, if we don't it was quite caustic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, for anyone who has not seen White Dwarf 77, um, there is a special message on the um, content page on the alternate um, subheading of each piece of the contents and it, it does read sod off brian ansell uh, brian of course uh was taking over games workshop at that point and had decided to move all operations up to nottingham so the whole london design studio was going to be closing down and uh, we were all offered the choice of moving up to to nottingham or, or taking redundancy the shorter it is um i decided that life was in london i took redundancy i've seen rumors that i was sacked which aren't true basically i took redundancy got a redundancy payment and started looking for a new job however it doesn't mean i wasn't bitter about the whole thing being offered um properly the title of editor several months beforehand and would have had only three actual issues to my name as editor you know it's a job i loved time under jamie thompson was fantastic one of my best bosses ever and i was doing something i really enjoyed that i was confident about doing yeah, so i was annoyed that it was basically going to go for me I had actually been up to Nottingham before. When I was at university, um, I was, you may remember, Dragonlords had four duck figures it produced, little 25 mil miniatures, uh, which I sculpted. Um, they're not the best sculpts in the universe. Uh, however, it was one area I explored, and I think I sent off uh, a llama I'd sculpted for RuneQuest to uh, Citadel and Brian Hansel and Brown commented on it and i went up and saw him about sculpting so nothing nothing came of that but it's one of those trips to nottingham where they go i don't like nottingham i'm terribly sorry if you live there um i've been up there for a, a, a university interview on one of the wettest foulest days of the year with the trent running a turbid and yellow don't remember it being particularly bright and sunny when i went up to see brian for sculpting and then there was the period of being wooed by people like um, Alan Merritt, who was uh, Brian Ansell's number two and number one yes man. Uh, Angus Ryle, who was formerly from Crash magazine, who was running around like a headless chicken trying to get people to join up. And Paul, of course, trying to, um, Paul Coburn, that is, trying to, get us to to come up and, and i know he talked about the the dinner um um he'd taken all the design studio to to try to persuade them to to go and basically got told f off <laughs> um um i don't remember any of that i mean i joked to paul that you know it's sort of basically i remember the candlelight twinkling in his eyes <laughs> and the words he softly whispered to me as i want you I want you. I want you as a new recruit. Um, um, but no, I don't remember any of any of what Paul. I have, you know, I've always liked to know him from when um, we were on Dragon Lords and sort of outside the industry and got on quite well. He always described himself as a an East End wild white boy, I think, and he lives up to it. Um, he's got a slight New Zealand twang to his accent now. Um, so, so um, talk, talk, talk about that the, the moment you decided that you were going to use the uh, content it, page to it, uh, express your feelings. Well, it's basically the trouble is if you give if you make someone redundant, 
and they want to express it and they're creative. I don't think I knew the word acrostic at the time, so I'd worked out working out fan working out what I could write. I was going, it's more, more subtle doing it on the subheadline, so it appears every other letter. It's so it's not as obvious. And I got stuck because I couldn't think of anything beginning with O. <laughs> and this was under gobbledygook. And Paul Mason, bless him, came up with Obitzes, Obitzes, how I ate those Obitzes, <laughs> and gave me my O, which was his contribution to it. But it was a hint that I wasn't going to get on anyway. Reach for Time on White Dwarf, where there was pressure to include Warhammer articles, and these terribly written contributions would turn up, and I would reject them, which didn't go down well. Not going to put any old crap in White Dwarf, despite what people may think. Um, it's got to have some merit, and it's got to be moderately well written and clear. I don't like working with someone who has yes-men to keep him going, or apparently keep him going. Uh, Mark Gascoigne, bless him, who has always been um, happy to say what he thinks. Um, I think that's his, his most notorious feature from from White from um, Dragon Lords, um, went up to Nottingham and didn't last particularly long before he got sacked the first time um, and then went on to the publishing side there. But um, um, it's... I like, uh, to say, I like to say it is a, the, the spirit of uh, Dragon Lords uh, having one final uh, death rattle. It in is. The, but, yeah. I mean, we weren't, you know, just not just me on the contents page, but design studio went berserk on the news page of that issue um the trouble is you know this is the, the level of trust games workshop had and it's and it's for people who was making redundant it said oh just fax us for final copy of the news page and we're okay it now back in that day magazines were put together on blue grids with bits of photo bromide from a linotype machine which were stuck down with cow gum um, and what you basically did was put together one news page and faxed it got it approved and you peeled off all the bits that were covering up the, the, the attack on games workshop so um so the design studio was also quite masterful sadly sabotaging um the issue as well as me doing my little acrostic um <laughs> Brilliant. Bomb. okay let's uh, let's roll again okay i've got 25 Ooh. and that's uh the judge dread role-playing game oh, so right you, yeah you have the writing credits for that sorry i have a writing credit because i think i did the initiative system for it this is, is such a long time ago and it wasn't one of my major projects um yeah, it was basically Mark Gascoigne who was the driver on that side of it. But um, basically, I he got stuck on something, and I think I came up with an initiative system. I can't remember what it was. Um, <laughs> this is the curious thing about Mark and myself. Um, Mark is the editor. I'm the rules writer. Yeah, I'm the one who's been doing editing for ages, and Mark is the one who's been writing rules mm. <laughs> um it's now switched back um because mark went on to the black library books for workshop and then now has his own publisher uh, publishing company angry robot um uh, and i've obviously moved into writing writing rules so um you know, as a contribution to um 
the rules. I've got a credit because I got involved with uh, a bit of a rules mechanics, and I so, think so playing time, some of it. So at that time, was a lot of crossover between the design teams on the games and um, you know your activities on White Dwarf. Um, yeah, well, White Dwarf was sort of its own separate little office of, in effect, me and Paul. The design studio, um, you had Mary Common, who was the production uh, editor, uh, and Albie Fiore, um, and a couple of layout artists and artists um, to do the book. So they also, as well as pasting up um, White Dwarf, um, I remember Albie working long and hard on the design of Golden Heroes. Um, it, uh, forgive me, I can't remember his full name, Bemo, who was doing art, the um, work on Judge Dredd with uh, little um, paper characters and everything, which was really up the street. And we had a, a fantastic girl called Sheila Dyer, who was basically there in full punk white face makeup and tartan. It, you know, it was quite I was quite um, considerably drab in comparison. Um, uh, you know, but it was it was interesting, and you know, so. But all the, all the people who do paste up worked on both the games and the magazine. Uh, but within uh, workshop itself, basically the uh, you know you had Mark working on um, on game design, and I was on White Dwarf. It's just we bounce ideas off each other. I think it's the best way of describing it. So if you were stuck or whatever, I got asked about because I, I used to go off to various conventions i think um convulsion but at one cone con i think i was uh, this was when we were working on my judge dread role-playing game and one fanzine editor trevor mendham just basically took me to task about it and saying you know would it be cheaper if it didn't have all the little cardboard characters in it yeah this isn't one of my projects and then going and i, I think i probably foolishly tried to defend it by saying yeah is it you know saying what they added to it like being a politician and not answering the, the question and you go actually the reality is it wouldn't be much cheaper without it because it would still sell at a fixed price i'd switched from being fanzine editor to establishment and um i think it's just you know people suddenly go well you've changed your color haven't you and yeah. you go yes well you have to i mean that's in a sense part of the reason why um dragon lords had to stop because I couldn't sort of maintain ribbing Ian and Steve at workshop and continue to put out their magazine. <laughs> so you've got you've got to suddenly go, that has to stop. I'm going to roll again. Uh, 42, Doctor Who, Time Lord. Oh, right, yes. That's one of my I, great achievements, I think. Um, Doctor Who role-playing game started as an idea at, at Games Workshop. Two of the sales teams, Peter Darvel Evans and Jervis Johnson, had basically wanted to do a, a Doctor Who role-playing game and, and had come up with a card-based system. Um, but they needed someone to basically put it together. And this is when I was editorial assistant on Dwarf. And um, so they picked me. And, you know, I enjoy Doctor Who. I'm sort of particularly strongly influenced by John Pertwee's Doctor and Joe Grant um, period and John Pertwee banging on about being good to the planet 
and everything. It's, it's why I'm, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm decidedly green in my political outlook. If he, if Joe Zomper was around to go, did this have any effect? You go, yes, it did. Mm. Um, so I, it's influenced me ever since. I've always been fond of Doctor Who, and I'd liked the opportunity of um, doing this. My writing skills at that point weren't as good, quite frankly. You know, working on a fanzine um, and White Dwarf don't actually put your writing skills up to a brilliant standard, but it was an opportunity to develop. And we basically got a game together with this deck of cards, which called the TARDIS, which was had a set of results from A, B, C, D on it about uh, what you needed to achieve to achieve a, a result. The trouble is F Fazer in Fazer in the, the States was also working on a Doctor Who role playing game and they beat us to the license. You know, uh, I think partly Games Workshop was relying on the fact it had a license for a Doctor Who board game. But it could actually produce a Doctor Who role playing game, but Fazer um, basically got uh, the license first and work on that version stopped. Um, there's probably a a small deck of cards made out of photobromide and green paper uh, sitting in a Parker Quink box somewhere in my boxes in my life it's kept as a memento. But that's it. That's all that remains of that. Um, but I kept an eye on um, the license for the game and when it expired, uh, because they're typically only for something like three years, I basically I approached... Um, Peter Darville Evans, who'd by then gone to work for Target Books, and I was editing Doctor Who novelizations uh, for him, said, well, no, I've got a great idea for a, a system that will really suit the teleplay of Doctor Who. Um, what do you think? The license has expired. You can check that. And he did, and it had. And he said, great, yes, as long as I'm also a writer, a co-writer. Um, and so that sort of led to the genesis of, of Time Lord. But background to the system is, because I, I said I was, Paul Mason, my editorial assistant, was also my flatmate for a while in, very much into working out on working out game mechanics. And we'd come up with something called, which was loosely called the top flat system, which was an effect-based dice system using 2D6. Peter Darvillens, I think, came up with the phrase, beat the difference, um, and I, just come up with the actual system so the idea is yeah, Doctor Who the characters aren't particularly special they have odd little skills the person with all the skills is the Doctor and so it's actually a very hard game to to role play in the conventional sense if you role play because you like experience points and going up levels and increasing your skills and becoming better I don't think Doctor Who is that game. Sort of Time Lord uses um, templates. And it's quite early in games for using yeah. templates for characters and saying, that's who you play. Um, you know, there's a slight chance you can improve, but there's no actual character progression system. And I think the trouble there is I was probably 20 to 30 years ahead of my time. And what I should do is drop Time Lord through time and space to now. <laughs> where the concept that you might play a fixed character would probably go down better. Yes. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I think, uh, because more of my role-playing has been about playing the character than actually worrying about progression. I mean, obviously, you, you want to get better and you want to succeed, but you go, so much of the entertainment comes from the, the story and taking part in it um, without going too extreme on that level. Gamers like rolling dice, and so what, 
you have to do with that is have a mechanic that reflects a teleplay, whereas elite troops firing at point-blank point range cannot hit a thing, because that's what Doctor Who does. I was working full-time as a sub-editor on a magazine called Estates Times, and I basically quit my job for a year. Target had been taken over by Virgin at that point, um, so I got an advance on royalties, and I spent a year watching Doctor Who tapes Ooh. and <laughs> writing rules. Uh, I know nowadays you know, you're used to the idea you can go out and you can buy Doctor Who from way back on disc, and back then it didn't exist. You know, you had a few official videos from the BBC at a very high price. This is where one of my friends from university came in because he had contacts through the Doctor Who fan network. I supplied him videotapes and he would provide me copies of virtually everything in existence from Doctor Who. In addition to that, I had a period when Paul Mason was still at Warwick University and they would have Doctor Who weekends. So I spent some of my life while I was at workshop sleeping on Paul Mason's floor at Warwick University to watch Doctor Who and Blake Seven. And that's another difference between the early version of the Doctor Who role-playing game from Workshop, where there was no background information apart from novelizations, to going on to doing Time Lord, where I viewed everything I could to get all the background I could um, to make the game as authentic as possible. Because for one thing that is... Um, it's evident about Doctor Who fandom. There are people who know a lot about the yeah. background and they're very keen. And if you write something stupid or wrong, they will let you know. I, I was, felt I had to research it. I had the material to write it. Um, and I wanted also to capture the flavour of Doctor Who, um, which is why you've got skills like MacGuffin and Bench Thumping in there. Um, the Fazza version had gone on on and on about jelly babies and really labouring a joke about um, about jelly babies. And you go, there is one thing about America. It can sometimes completely miss British humour and not understand it. Um, and I think they missed it with the Doctor Who role-playing game. And it's what I tried to put into, into Time Lord. Um, there are odd bits I've made up and put in there. I think I made up Home Planet of Yogrons, and someone criticised me on my Latin, I think, on one fan page. But the point about it is I, I named the planet Ogros because it's basically, you can say, where do they come from? Oh, gross! <laughs> <laughs> There's my own private joke, because back then Betty Boo was quite popular in the charts with Where Are You Baby? So the sample character at the back is, is her. It's just called Alison, because that's her um, real name. And um, so basically the idea was she would just wander into the TARDIS from a science fiction music set and go <laughs> off. Um, but that's it. The idea was, you know, you could generate yourself as a character. I mean, we won't go into the alarming things about what happens if you're, you were killed as yourself in a role-playing game and the psychological trauma that involves. Um, but, you know, the idea was to try to, try to properly recreate um, the TV series in the game. Um, and it remains yeah. a it remains a, a, a great source book as well, doesn't it? Of, uh, well, again, material. lovingly researched. I've still got the original notes in a cupboard somewhere. Okay. It's basically when I've watched watching videos, I'd write down things. When one of the companions did something, if it could be read as an ability, you know, if it 
I think in terms of modern day, so when Billy Piper swings on a chain in in and goes on about her bronze in gymnastics or something, you'd go gymnastics one as as a, as a skill and and write the context out. A soft spot for Michael Craze and Anique Wills uh, as Ben and Polly. Um, Patrick Troughton era, and that's also my that's my hide behind the sofa period. Uh, where I couldn't stay in the room long enough, um, but would keep coming back in to watch more. Um, and it's curious, you know, the things that I remember most are not the Daleks as being scary, but the Cybermen, because you've got black and white telly and these harsh carrot figures on screen. And I've got vivid memories of the Tomb of the Cybermen as a kid. It scared, scared me completely. <laughs> Um, so I was delighted when that particular story was found, but of course it hadn't been found in time to um, uh, write help with Time Lord. And, and if the listeners look hard enough, when the internet came along, you actually made that available, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I mean, after a while, when basically, obviously, I think um, Time Lord only had a print run of eight thousand. I believe it all sold out. Um, but and I've had this memory of seeing it in the windows of foils for one day. And I walked past in London, um, which was a, a proud moment. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunately, um, they obviously weren't going to reprint it. And so I asked if I could have the rights to it back. It got clear, so I have, have the rights to the game and Peter's permission to republish it. And so I put it on the internet. So, yes, it's been out there. There's something I regret. It's um, back in 1990 or so when I was working on it, the convention was to write he as a gender neutral and I would now change that yeah. um, one day and to, to work around that, you know, um, going back to women in D and D or women in role playing, you go, you're very rare or uh, you're not anymore. And um, you, you tend to get that sort of one sided view of things and you go, well, we'll stick with convention. You're writing a set of rules. Uh, we'll write something that's clear to understand. I know it's not necessarily, ideal uh, but it is the clearest shortest way of writing if writing he instead of the player or the player character all the time saves you a considerable amount of space um, and there is no acceptable compromise on he she or it apart from shit <laughs> very true very true well well, listeners can uh, seek that out if uh, using the appropriate search tool. I'm going to... Uh, uh, and please don't condemn me for the non-PC writing of it. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go uh, for the next one. And I've got 63. Next, it's uh, Adventurer. Because you did quite a few uh, contributions to Adventurer magazine. Um, I'm just, all right. I think I'll roll my D6 at this point and try to parry that one. My goodness, this is a challenge. This oh, has yes. never happened before. Um, that's a nipple. A nipple? A nipple. <laughs> <laughs> Which in Dragon Lords means I think I win the debate, so I'm going to switch topic <laughs> and I'm going to roll again. And that's a poo emoji. Poo emoji. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which makes me think of Imagine. I'm sure a number of people would like to know how White Dwarf and Imagine... Um, got on so um yeah because we've uh, actually had the other side haven't we we've heard from paul coburn in an earlier episode of uh 
uh, you know the, what it was like on uh, on the Imagine side. So yeah, let's 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 hear it from uh, the dwarf side. Oh, it's, well, mentioning Paul, um, Paul and a number of the uh, um, TSR crew um, we knew as Dragon Lords. So before I went and joined Games Workshop, we've been excited about Imagine coming out um, as as fanzine editors. Um, we ruthlessly tore into the staff at TSR as much as Games Workshop and Dragon Lords. So people like Don Turnbull and Paul and Mike Brunton all got got it in the neck um, occasionally. Um, I noticed looking back at some Dragon Lords, we were we were quite rude. Um, I implied that the, I think by the time the Blooms were taking over TSR, the initials of of Kevin and then Gary Gygax and Brian spelt KGB. So <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> we. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's very odd because, you know, we've been to, um, well, I particularly went to um, conventions such as TSR's Games Fair and got on with people. It's where I first, uh, the only time I've run into Gary Gygax. And, and of course, with the launch of Imagine, we'd seen the, the samples, uh, the sample issue that come out. And I've still got one somewhere and, and sort of got to know, know the crew. Um, I'd actually, before I joined Workshop, um, gone up to TSR in Cambridge um, for the job of a project administrator. Um, so I was obviously keen um, to try to get a, a job in the uh, games industry. And um, I think TSR were quite keen to interview me because of all the stuff I'd done on um, Dragon Lords. And I could clearly write, but I think I had one of the worst interviews I can remember. <laughs> um, um, he was given a, an editing test, and it's a D&D based one. And I realised I didn't play enough D&D, so I didn't understand um, a whole pile of fairly standard abbreviations in TSR modules. So I didn't Ooh. know what this word FACO was. And it's it's the abbreviation for to hit armour class zero. Yeah, yeah. And it just it didn't mean anything to me it's just one of those moments where i look at something and go completely blank well, if, 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 it's, if it's any consolation you know i played uh, uh, D a few times with thaco and i still don't understand it so <laughs> i don't trouble is it was there and no one used it um it's, yeah. it, it was there as convenient so you knew what number you needed to hit that armor class and yeah. um uh, no one used it because we all looked it up on the tables um but so that that was my sort of rough involvement with with tsr so it was then quite odd going on to work on white dwarf and then suddenly this this magazine had been a, a, a rival to white dwarf um was actually something i had to think about um because it it had been going slightly before, um, let's say slightly before I actually joined as editorial assistant on Dwarf. And I knew Paul Coburn, who's uh, quite a character. Um, Imagine did actually drive a lot of what happened on White Dwarf. Um, it, I was never really, when I was got up to assistant editor and editor, I was never worried about Imagine. But yeah, you know, so you know the, the whole thing about Imagine it continued to to influence what I did on White Dwarf. Um, in, in what uh, way? In what ways um, 
did, did it influence you then? So how did it, you know, what tangible difference did it make to the editorial content of uh, Dwarf? I think we, well, moved over to using articles that made people think a bit more. You know, there's, there's a role for the standard stuff, such as adventures and uh, monsters, magic items and so on. But it was also trying to get articles that really made people think about, about role-playing. I mean, in part of that also reflects what my role-playing was doing at the time. We were moving away from levelling up and experience and more with the more into the story and and not necessarily at high power although i don't think i've ever actually played in a high power uh, role-playing campaign because it's it's just not my thing the the whole experience of it is is key but again without that lean towards people who would say would regard white dwarf as boring because it it <laughs> it didn't excite them you go well yes you know there are the, the the fanzine press in particular, it has a more extreme view and um, you can't listen to an extreme as for sole guidance on what you're going to do. You could be influenced by it and I think well, we took on board some of the things that were being said about White Dwarf trying to create the interest but without taking it too far away from from a mainstream approach and something that needed to sell to general gamers. When Imagine finished... How did that feel? Oh, it was a big relief. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's it's sad because when you've got something there as a rival, it, it continues to spur you onwards. Um, got to up your game. So it is sad when something that drives you on goes because it suddenly becomes harder to um, keep up that sort of level of focus on making a magazine better. Um, it's perhaps it's just me. I, I always like having a spur. Um, um, rather, otherwise, I tend to go into coast mode. It's as as true today as it was was back then. And and you mentioned uh, Marcus L. Rowland and um, uh, fans of the uh, uh, podcast uh, hold uh, Marcus in high esteem. But I, I I think you inferred that that wasn't always the case um, back in the day. Um, well, it's it's the different views. I say the the, the more active um, fans, yeah. are less keen. I I got the impression of um, from them at various hobby meets and so on about Marcus. And you go, you don't really appreciate what he does. Um, and you know, it's reassuring to know that um, he does in fact have a a huge fan base himself who 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 appreciate what he did um you know and i'm sure he's influenced a lot of people um with his adventures and ideas on and shape their role playing um and there again we can use other stuff stuff from say dragon lords um i think chris elliott and dick edwards were were two of the really creative people that we came across for dragon lords and they did the ecology of a piercer and um and sleigh wars and i think we we redid sleigh wars for white dwarf at some point um because they had a real sense of fun and so you sort of that's a balance to some of the more serious aspects 
Um, so a little bit of Dragonlord's humour getting into White Dwarf um, and trying to make it fun as, as, as well as uh, useful in every single way. Let's roll again on the table. I've got 15. And this is Fighting 15. Huzzah! Ooh. Huzzah. Right, well, um, yes, that's rules and toy soldiers. Um, as I said, I've moved down to the Isle of Wight what, in, in 1999 and gone freelance. I had started working and sort of progressed gradually back to computers and computer games. So the last magazine I worked on full-time was PC Gaming World up in uh, London. Um, so, you know, it's one of those... Env- great situation so I was cage up in London keeping in touch with friends and working on magazines as a freelance and also playing computer games at home for a living um, um, but like all good things um, they sort of come to an end so what I, I did was turn to um, something I knew I could do which was painting figures you know, both from uh, role playing and from way back my fig- I've always been able to paint figures neatly. I just got a steady hand, uh, and I'd like to think an eye for detail. So I decided to set up a figure painting service. But and of course, you know, the internet obviously been going because I was doing a lot of work over the um, internet as well by then. But also you had forums, and um, one of the miniatures forums at the times mentioned a range of. 18mm Napoleonic British from a company called Eureka Miniatures um, in Australia and someone wrote does anyone stop them in the UK and I thought no one does but you know Fighting 15s was set up first as a painting service which I was running for about two years and then started to have moved to e-commerce once I picked up Eureka Miniatures Eureka was then the agent for AB figures in Australia AB also had a um, had a um, UK side, but um, there was some licensing change, and I got AB figures as well. And basically, that's given me the basis for the toy soldier side of the business. So I have, I think, one of the best ranges of 15 millimeter historicals and 20 mil World War Two figures in the world um, that I sell, and then I basically just been fortunate in who I've been doing business with to get them. So I basically turned up in London one day to see my friends from editing and said, I'm going to be importing these. And I produced these 28mm teddy bear figures in uniforms, which Eureka now unfortunately doesn't make. And I think I probably left my friends slightly stunned about what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) So that's sort of how I got involved from or changed from painting service to... um, Toy Soldier Empire, and, you know, and it's a small empire. It keeps me um, fully busy, which is, is what I need. I, yeah. uh, as you, you know, things like the acrostic show. I'm not actually fond of working for people. Uh, <laughs> I think I think it's great Ian, that you've uh, managed to get back to your roots, and uh, you know, you, you started the story about how uh, you started with Earthix kits and starting with those. Uh, and you know you've had a whole career, and you've managed to uh, go back to your origins. That's, uh, that's yes. great. Yes, oddly, yes. I started 
professionally packing boxes and games workshops warehouse for soldiers and stuff <laughs> and now i'm packing boxes of soldiers of stuff so yes you could say i've gone back to my roots or i haven't moved on <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant well thank you very much Ian for sharing uh, the time with us uh, and telling your stories they're great thank you thank you Billy Dwarf does Dagan again literary criticism literary criticism blimey that's a bit eyebrow isn't it I thought we were looking at an RPG fanzine well as I discussed last time Dagan often carried short stories, but over time more and more articles from the scholarly heavyweights of Lovecraftian analysis started to appear, really delving into the minutiae of mythos fiction and related fields. I think it was in Dagan 17 that this really took hold. The issue was focused on the theme of the Cthulhu mythos and the occult. It was like nothing I'd ever read before. It kicked off with an article by Lee Blackmore on Lovecraft's use of the occult in his fiction. I think the main aim of the article was to slay the idea that Lovecraft knew more than he let on, and perhaps he was speaking truths when he veiled in the form of fiction. Mr Blackmore quoted a succession of modern occultists like Kenneth Grant and Anton LaVey, and their attempts to link Lovecraft into various pet occult theories. It gave all these crazy notions both barrels with an extensive refutation from Lovecraft's correspondence. While he was clearly happy to use occult symbolism in his fiction, Lovecraft nevertheless regarded all superstitions as being without a shred of credence. Issue 17 also contained a great article by Mark Valentine on the influence on Lovecraft of the Welsh writer Arthur Matchen. Now, Matchen is a very different individual from Lovecraft, a self-styled mystic with a genuine interest in the occult. He was a good friend of noticed occultist A.E. Waite and fellow member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. A very different worldview of that of Lovecraft then. Nevertheless, Matchen's haunting stories, which often draw an ancient, primal horror from the surrounding landscape, share a number of thematic parallels with those of H.P. Lovecraft. And in this article, Valentine examined these links in detail, both generally and in the specific famous works of the two authors, such as The Call of Cthulhu and the novel The Black Seal. One other article from this issue I'll quickly mention is one from the noted Lovecraftian scholar Robert Price on Lovecraft's use in his fiction of theosophy. The somewhat barking set of ideas around the occult metaphysics made popular by Helena Petrovna Blavatsky in the late 19th century. Price's analysis of both the fiction and the letters of Lovecraft examined both the use of specific details from theosophy, like the Book of Dizan and the city of Shambhala, and the more oblique use of its themes and the archaic truth, terrible in its reality. Price showed that, once again, while Lovecraft was happy to draw on the ideas of theosophy to lend his depiction of the occult a certain verisimilitude, 
he still retained a healthy scepticism in his view of its adherents as charlatans. Heady stuff, but also fascinating. These articles in Dagan never came across as dry or academic. They were accessible to read and really added a depth to the stories of Lovecraft. I'd yet to read any of his letters at this point, and so I was unaware of his influences and the background to many of his tales. Articles in Dagon really helped to fill the gaps and added to my appreciation of his work. And this analysis didn't stop at Lovecraft. When Dagon published its author specials, the works of these writers were also put under the critical spotlight. Two highlights from these issues, Et Diabolus and Cartanus Est, The Ceremonies and Themes of Arthur Machen by Mark Valentine, and The Lost Art of Twilight, Two Aspects of the Vampire by Simon McCulloch. Mark Valentine's article returned to the influence of Arthur Machen once more, this time on T.E.D. Klein and his novel The Ceremonies. As a quick aside, this was another example of Dagon introducing an author to me. Arthur Machen is a very undervalued and underappreciated writer of horror fiction, whose work I'd really recommend. There's also a thread that runs through him, through Robert Eggman and to Ramsey Campbell, all writers who deal with the spider touch of fear in their unsettling and disturbing stories. Valentine highlighted Klein and Machen's shared sense of power in folklore and mythology, both in the plots and the underpinning themes of the respective authors' works. He analysed how the protagonists surrendered to the supernatural agents and were subsumed in a greater and darker mystery, seeing beyond the veil. A very Lovecraftian idea too, of course. He looked at both writers' ideas around the horror of corruption and how it differed in a writer working at the beginning of the 20th century compared with one working at the end. Reading this article over again, Valentine's arguments remain very persuasive. It makes me want to go back and re-read both Machen and Klein at the very earliest opportunity. Simon McCulloch's article, meanwhile, appeared in the Thomas Ligotti issue and was the forensic examination of Ligotti's story, The Lost Art of Twilight. McCulloch undertook a detailed deconstruction of the vampire myth through Ligotti's story, also looking at vampire fiction from Bram Stoker, you might have heard of that one, and a Robert McCammon and Joe Lansdale into the bargain. He presented Ligotti's story as a distillation of the essence of the vampire myth, the seductive glamour of eternal youth, free from the effects of change and time. But this high ideal comes at a cost, a total submission to the subhuman cravings of a vampire's bestial nature. McCulloch expertly illustrated both aspects of the nature of the vampire through Ligotti's story, in this comprehensive and authoritative article. Dagan featured many such in-depth articles, and my 17-year-old self devoured them all. And, as is often the case with a serious young man, 
I started to take H.P. Lovecraft and the Cthulhu mythos very seriously indeed. So much so that I went off to seek more, buying back issues of Crypt of Cthulhu and Lovecraft Studies to get my fix of the writings of the likes of S.T. Joshi, Robert Price and Will Murray. Fortunately, Dagan itself was not afraid to puncture such pomposity and released two humour specials, issues 16 and 27, guaranteed to cause offence to serious-minded Lovecraft aficionados. Issue 16 was particularly good. It featured The Sinister Secret of Shoggoth Street by H.P. Luddite, which took a rather obvious route of Lovecraft's pastiche, but did contain a memorable line. Don't go in the house on Shoggoth Street, cos if you do you'll get eaten. Rather more nuanced was the one of Neil Gaiman's first published stories, I, Cthulhu, an autobiography of a certain misunderstood great old one, as dictated to a human slave, Waitley. Dagan also boasted the Red Brains Trust, a regular question and answer column written by Peter Jeffrey. He holds the distinction of penning the first non-gaming article for Dagan, Lovecraft, a literary anomaly, back in issue 7. Peter Jeffrey's informal, chatty style was a pleasure to read and ensured that the column never descended into a po-faced criticism. All manner of questions about Lovecraft and his literary circle were asked and then clearly and entertainingly answered by Mr Jeffrey. His depth of research was very impressive, particularly given that this was all pre-internet. I wrote in with my own question about Lovecraft's story in the walls of Erex and received a comprehensive handwritten reply in the post. The question was then included in a column in a later issue. And what impressed me all the more was that Peter Jeffrey didn't simply repeat the contents of his letter but instead provided another equally comprehensive answer, teasing out further facts and background. One other notable article that I think just about falls under the umbrella of literary criticism was Lovecraft in the Comic Books by Randy Wadkins from issue 24. It's a fun article, lighter in tone than many that appeared in Dagon, yet nevertheless it's a pretty comprehensive review of Lovecraft in American comics, both straight-up adaptations of his tales as well as stories inspired by his work. There are some mouth-watering gems mentioned. I particularly like the sound of Cool Air, illustrated by the late Bernie Wrightson of Swamp Thing fame, as well as a few others that sound like they've been best avoided. Depicting Pickman's model seems to have been beyond some artists. Through it all, Mr Watkins' enthusiasm for the medium shines through, entertaining stuff, and yet again inspires the reader to seek out the source material. So, there you go. Whatever your taste, whether you wanted a detailed analysis of Arthur Matchin's influence on H.P. Lovecraft, a treatise on Thomas Lagotti's assault on certainty, or if you preferred Lovecraft P.G. Woodhouse mashup. Dagon had something for you. I'll take attack. 
I'm in the lofty confines of the loft here at Dirk Towers. I'm in the attic where I store the archive of material from tabletop RPGs history. I have Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Did you get through okay this time? Yeah, just about. Yeah, I had to squeeze my huge sack through uh, because I've invited listeners to share their experiences of zines from back in the day. And we've had a good response. So in this section, we're going to share some of their responses and talk about zines. It's fair to say, is it, uh, Blythe, that back in the day, I was the one who would get zines. You, you, didn't re- you weren't really turned on to them, were you? Not really. I would, I would, I would read yours. I'm a cheapskate. I'd let you buy them and I'd read yours. Yeah. And think, why is he spending his money on this? <laughs> and he could buy these shiny new miniatures. Look. <laughs> I think part it was partly drawn by. Um, I, I think the responsibility tend to imagine. Imagine really turned me on to mm. uh, uh, fanzines. Um, I did have a few early. Um, Dragon Lords, which we can talk about, but it was really uh, Mike Lewis's article in uh, in Imagine that really got me excited about them, and uh, used to send off my stunt dressed envelope and get those ones. Yeah, well, they were, and they were also quite a new thing. I mean, fanzines have, have existed for for decades. Oh, yeah. I mean, small, small, yeah, small magazines and all that kind of thing, obviously. But for us at that age, this was a discovery, wasn't it? Because we were we didn't know about fanzines and small magazines and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So role-playing fanzines almost seemed like a unique element of role-playing games that there were these fanzines in existence. Yeah. So it was quite it was kind of exciting. They were, they were exciting, and and I think as well the I mean we come back to this all the time, don't we? That thing that in the eighties. They, they burst the bubble or that you felt you were in because it was like there were other people out there producing these magazines talking yeah. about role-playing games. It was like, again, it was like finding life on another planet, yeah. that there were these other people out there that were producing this stuff and writing about this stuff and, and asking, I suppose, some of the questions that we were asking about role-playing, about am I playing it right? This is how I play it. This is how I don't play it. This yeah. is what, Here's one of my adventures, that kind of thing, that you yeah. could read and go, oh, well, yeah, we are doing it right. We yeah. do it a bit like that. My yeah. adventures are like that. I think that's true. I think it showed that there was a, a world out there, but also um, what appealed to me was the sense of exclusivity. Yeah. It was very cliquey because the same names would appear in different fanzines, so um, if you'd pick them up, you'd come to recognise people who contributed to the letters page. Yes. And yeah. they seemed very erudite. Because they, they were mainly at university and we weren't. They always yes, yes that's true. There, there was an element where a lot of them. I mean, they they weren't all older than us, but a lot of them were older than us in some of the fanzines. Yeah, yeah, and it, it felt like uh, somehow you were vicariously becoming smarter by <laughs> yeah, participating joining the club, in the really club. Yes, yeah. yeah, there was that. In their like uh, conversations about uh, yeah. the finer points of uh, travel and wind <laughs> rules or something like that. Yeah. Well, I think and that was always one of the ironies of, of role-playing back then, wasn't it? That in one sense you felt isolated because no one you knew played these weird games or wanted to play them or understood what you were doing. But at the same time, you would have been appalled. If you think back to school, if you'd set up a role-playing club, which we did, you know, we got, I think we got um, one member, didn't we? We did get one We got one member. member. <laughs> uh, which, in, in a sense, we were disappointed about. But in the other sense... If I can I can name you ten people in that school that if they'd turned up to join I would have been appalled 
Yes. Well, what you you can't you're not allowed to play this. So yeah. there was exclusivity. It was it was the, we want more people to play, but only certain people, only certain type of people, really. Yeah. You know, and, and some things never change. Some things don't change. Really. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. Now, before we look at some of these um, the, these fanzines, a lot of these came out in the eighties, and they deal with the thorny subject of humour. So I've got this for you to wear. Okay. Um, I hope it'll fit. It's uh, it's a magical item. Oh, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's a bit th- snug. <laughs> I've been on holiday recently. That's what I put it down to. <laughs> it's um, the girdle of postmodern detachment. Yes. So as uh, fully signed up members of the metropolitan liberal elite. Is it an 18 hour one? <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping it'll just last for the next 20 minutes. Okay, I'll do. I can take it off then, can I? Yeah, well, because we're members of the metropolitan liberal liberal elite of course was, we are we sound like that we sound like the sort when, when we work in this what it'll mm. mean what it'll mean it'll mean that we'll be able to simultaneously have a critical distance yes from any racism sexism mocking of people with disabilities yes yeah? yes uh, and general unpleasantness yes but at the same time yeah this is where it's good this girdle right yeah. we'll be laughing with the sexism racism yes Mocking of disability and general yes. unpleasantness. Yeah. So, yeah. If, if you were in kind of postmodern way, impossible. They can do essentially what you want. Yeah. Whatever you want, say it's postmodern. Yeah. Leave me alone. Ricky Gervais has one. Yeah. But this goes on the blink every so often. <laughs> now, okay, we can't lose with this. We can't lose this. So I want to look at um, uh, uh, Dragon Lords. Okay. Because I posted on the blog a few weeks ago some pages from. Dragon Lords. Yes. Some sample pages, mm. which covered some of the areas that um, Ian Marsh talked about last time. Yes. Yeah. And normally, when I put a post on, uh, on on the site, people share it, people pass it on. Yes. I sensed a certain nervousness. A reluctance to share it. Share it, oh, like yeah. it, or express any kind of... Okay. Why uh, is that? ...allegiance to it. <laughs> Well, you read it, <laughs> so you I, know. Well, I'd just say that for effect. <laughs> um, I was just building up a bit of narrative there, trying to build a narrative tension. Why is that? Because it's do tell us, Dirk. Do tell us. It's fair to say that uh, Dragon Lords did lots of things. So it, you know, it had uh, articles. It covered mm. areas of interest, but the real life of it was in the letters page and some of the controversies it generated. Yes. And much of the controversy was about its representation of women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes. on the covers, um, they would very frequently have nipples exposed. Yeah. And nipples would be discussed. It would be, you know, like a to-in and fro Like a kind of early RPG version of FHM. Yeah. I, no, because I think in the 90s, by the 90s, you see, that that's when the um, girdle of post-ironic... Kitten, kitten. Yeah, they were mass production then, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Everybody were <laughs> everyone, wearing them. Everyone's wearing one. <laughs> <laughs> but in the early eighties and the mid eighties, comedy was being redrawn, wasn't it? It was being yes. uh, worked through. Yeah, it seems churlish, doesn't it, to criticise um, schoolboys writing for schoolboys of having schoolboy humour. That's true. It does. It does seem critical to criticise schoolboys for schoolboy humour. <laughs> yeah, it seems slightly unfair, doesn't it? Yeah, you know. Like calling mocking elephants for having long noses. 
I want to go back to um, this uh, as a case in point. Yeah. Okay, remember we've got the girdle switched on, so we're mm. all right doing this. The Women in uh, D&D article. So, yes. Um, it was particularly controversial. Um, mm. So, let me let me just have a, a read through it. Okay. Ready for this? Right. Um, I need to tighten the girdle for yeah, this. Yeah. Women in D&D, strength, 1D6. How many of you have been plagued by a woman who can't even open a screw trap jar? I think my wife would say she's been plagued with a man who can't open a screw top jar, but there you go. Intel- intelligence. Toss a coin. Heads it's seven, tails it's eight. Ooh. It's all right, we've got this on. It's all right, yeah, 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 yeah it's all okay. Right. Postmodern. It's all right. Yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. I don't understand that one. What's that? What does that mean? I don't understand that joke. If it is a joke, it's a joke, isn't it? I don't, yeah. I don't quite understand it. Toss a coin. Well, let's see this one. Okay. This is my favourite. I've got the girdle. Yeah, anyway. okay. Dexterity, 1d6 plus 1d8. They need a high dexterity to move their jaws so fast. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Charisma. I don't, I don't know if statistically, would that, does that dice give you a high dexterity? 1d6 plus a d8? You better roll in 3d6. It needs to be thoroughly playtested. It, it does, really, doesn't it? It's flawed. <laughs> Charisma. 3d6, but 2d6 in the rain if they're wearing water-based cosmetics. Ouch. And my favourite, yeah. Anyway, this, I, I like this one. <laughs> you say favourite, yeah. you mean... Because I'm, I'm laughing at it. You mean well favourite in a postmodern way? Yeah, I am. Yeah. It's all right. Okay. Alignment should be re-rolled every hour due to constant changing of attitudes. <laughs> No. How old were they when they wrote this? Was <laughs> he 15? Well, the thing, the thing is, is that because we've kind of put these out and uh, there's a renewed interest in uh, Dragon Lords, because um, honestly, it's really worth it because there's some um, great stuff in there. There's uh, a really good interview with uh, Greg Stafford in one of the later yeah. issues. And you know, there's a, like, there's a clamour to make them available. Um, mm. And I think Ian Marsh has said, you know, well, you know, we'll t- I'll talk with the guys and see if we can get it agreed. But he said they'll have to come with a health warning, yeah, um, because times. Well, have he does. Changed. He does say in the in the interview, doesn't he, that there was an attempt to create controversy. Yeah, which that I mean, you can look at that in two ways. You can look at that as schoolboy humour. They just they've written that because they think that's funny. Yeah. Or you can look at it in terms of. They're also trying to create provoke controversy and provoke people into sending letters in because that's what they want. They want a kind of energy to it. To well, it's probably a bit of both, to be honest. Yeah. But but they probably knew that that was controversial. You know. In in, in the heyday of uh, fanzines, so in that mid eighties uh, period, I remember that White Dwarf used to have its own um, kind of mock fanzine as an insert for subscribers yeah, yeah. and it was called Black Sun and it was not usually used to promote Citadel miniatures surprise surprise uh, but <laughs> the shape of things to come I, re- I remember in there in one I've still got it I've still mm. got it I've still got it in my battle cars box yeah. because it was uh, it was rules for um, drivers who'd become disabled oh yes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it's called battle chairs and you could have a 
uh, use the battle cars rules to have a fight in a wheelchair. Mm. Let's have a look at some of these others uh, that we've got then. So James Holloway has provided um, some sample pages from uh, Twin World and Stormlord. And I'm going to put these up on the um, site and I'll mm. also put a link to uh, James's site because he's actually doing a podcast um, called Monster Man where he's going through the monster manual <laughs> monster by monster so <laughs> you know it's a dream come true for us isn't it, it is but, isn't it but I'll link, put a link to that so this is this is what um, James has uh, said Twin World and Stormlord were from the archives of the Cambridge University Role Playing and Tabletop Society formerly the Cambridge University Role Playing Society formerly the Cambridge University Dungeons and Dragons Society for me, the zines are a fascinating piece of gaming history and one that I'm glad to have had chance to look at. Reading about the museum exhibits being prepared for this year's Gen Con, I wonder if there'll be someday a museum or just an exhibit devoted to the history of RPGs or even the British community specifically. It seems that there are a lot of interesting things to say about the way in which these fanzines represent an early community where games inspired people to create and share things and where there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the player and the game designer. So that's, that's an interesting point, isn't it? So mm. fandom and this kind of need to house rule or make your rules available to other people yeah. is a phenomenon that is still apparent in the hobby, isn't it? Particularly driven by the internet. Yeah. People want to share their hacks of the rules or their interpretation yeah. of the rules or their spin or their scenarios. And that's something that, that's quite, it is very apparent when you look at a lot of fanzines from back, back in those days that people feel, and, and I suppose it's surprising actually, that people feel almost from the word go that they can do that with these games. So you see it now and it seems a natural thing now for people to do that. But Back in those days, these games were relatively new. And yet, almost from them being new, people were changing them and yeah. felt a sense of ownership that they could change stuff. So there's, I think, one of the one of the fanzines talks, there's something about rules about injuries in Traveller and he's not happy with the injury system in Traveller. And there's another fanzine talks about magic and says, oh, yeah, no, the, all these magic systems, none of them really work. I don't like any of them. I want to invent my own system and this kind of thing. And that's going on from a very, very early stage, isn't it? The games haven't been out long yeah. and that's happening, which is interesting, you know. I mean, you don't get chess clubs doing that, do you? No, no, good. I think your pawns should be able to move three squares, not two. It's stupid. You don't get that. This is a good point. This is a fair point, yeah. (laughs) But but it's an interesting thing, isn't it? That people feel that sense of not just sharing their house rules and sharing their interpretations, but they feel confident enough to do that, don't they? Yeah. So whilst you can can laugh at schoolboy humour and the silliness of what schoolboys are writing, but these are schoolboys who feel confident enough to say, you know what, I don't think this rule works. Yeah. I think it should work like this, and I'm going to put that in a fanzine and distribute it. I think in, there's a kind uh, of confidence there about it, and a kind of ownership of these that these games are their games. They belong to people who play them. You know, D and D belongs to the people who play it, not Gary Gygax. Yeah, almost. 
And, and also I think it's to do with, you know, what I was saying earlier about, uh, I mean, this, this is um, part of university um, fanzine. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of these fanzine, many of them emerge from clubs. Mm. So clubs would have them as a glorified newsletter to circulate amongst the members and share ideas um, that way. Um, so not necessarily looking for an audience beyond yeah. a wider yeah. group of uh, uh, friends. but And... It creates that element of exclusivity because it is so erudite, isn't it? Mm. You know that yeah. you actually, you know, the way they talk about it is so. Yeah. You know, anybody who was outside of the hobby would not yes. be able to make. Yeah. If you if you don't know, it. yeah, it is a bit like if if it's you know if it's nineteen eighty two and you don't know what D and D is, don't pick up a fanzine because you'll have even less idea. Yeah, yeah. because it is. Yeah, it's, it's niche within niche. I think is a phrase we've often used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's look at um, settings then. So this is from uh, Hyperlexic from uh, sunny California. Tales of the Reaching Moon. RuneQuest was amazing. The system was structurally elegant and very brutal, but mostly I was hooked on the setting, specifically the Lunar Empire. The trouble was that it was 1995 and I was getting into Glorantha at one of the lowest ebbs in the last 40 years or so. There were some good recent Avalon Hill materials from what I later learned was Ken Rolson's editorial ship, Sun County, Doristar, Strangers in Prax, but nothing was being published currently. So the only thing we could find was Tales of the Reaching Moon. In those early days of the internet, we couldn't even find how to reliably find this British magazine in the Bay Area. So every issue was like a secret document, smuggled in by other members of our cult. A friend of mine was the most advanced and found them first. After that, I started to get them. Reaching Moon was my entry point into Glorantha fandom. Through Reaching Moon, I found the Glorantha Yahoo group and was a spectator there for many arcane arguments. Through the Yahoo group, I found out about the launch of Isaris, Greg Stafford's second company after Chaosium, and also the Mainz Index to Glorantha, which showed me how much material I was missing. An uncountable number of eBay searches later, here I am. See, so this, this is an example, isn't it, where fandom keeps the flame alive. Yes. Yeah. So with the ebb, I think I, the way I described it last time, you get the ebbs and flows of the industry, you know, and the wranglings and uh, yeah. the various successes of games. But fandom can preserve something. Yeah. And um, I've got a few of uh, Tales of the Reaching Moon. Um, it, they do develop um, ideas about Galantham. It really does go into that kind of basket weaving type. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is thing. that. Yeah. yeah. But then again, I think these these are in some ways the most interesting of the fanzines. Because that idea of keeping alive a, a setting, um, it feels a bit more necessary to some extent. So if yeah. you were getting, if you were receiving that fanzine uh, and this setting that you loved and played your games in wasn't being covered by the industry anymore, it would seem more necessary and more of kind of lifeblood uh, of that setting that keeps it alive and keeps it fresh and gives you ideas. You know, more more so, I suppose, than 
uh, an article about a house rule, which you can kind of take or leave, or even a, an article which is a scenario, which you might think, well, I can take or leave that. I might run that scenario, I might not. But, but fanzines that develop a setting and keep discussion about a setting going is, is interesting. I mean, you know, it's like when we played Stormbringer, wasn't it? We played Stormbringer, and I think at the time there wasn't that much produced for it, was there, initially, for yeah, Stormbringer? Yeah. Uh, and a fanzine that talked about Stormbringer would have been great, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, that talked about the Young Kingdoms and picked out certain little references in the books that you might have missed and little bits. No, that would have been really, really good and really, really useful. So in some senses, those fanzines, uh, I, I think, are more important yeah. and more useful. They're not, they're not giving you house rules, but what they're giving you is, is settings, you know. And, yeah. So this, this, um, this fanzine came out during our deep freeze and I think what it did was kind of take the bridge between Gorontra as we knew it as a kind of set dressing for adventures mm. and to create like a living, breathing world. Let's have a look at uh, another one. Um, I remember this one. Uh, it's Lankmar Daily Star um, and uh, Rob Knott, the editor and publisher, has written a fascinating piece which we're going to put into the Grognard Files uh, zine and he's providing some photographic evidence and everything but here's a, here's a sample paragraph from the essay that he's written Lankmar Daily Star Issue 9 was essentially one complete RPG system for my new game 2112 named after the Rush album and it came out with a supplementary zine containing a ridiculously complicated magic system and other bits and pieces that raised the bar of what you might consider pretentious to mean. It was set in a sort of fantasy Europe and worked similar to Game of Thrones with a series of noble houses that various players belonged to. From issue 10 onwards, I started broadening the scope of the fanzine to include numerous articles on RPG design, rules, a few scenarios, more play-by-mail games and various non-RPG subjects dear to my heart, such as progressive rock music. Pretty quickly, I began lapping up lots of subscribers and the zine seemed to be something of a cult hit. There were plenty of zines that served up a strict diet of standard AD&D material that had more readers than me, but I had all the cool readers, the ones who knew who Velvet Underground were. How would you like to play in the game of 2112 Rush? Example. <laughs> what would a strange device be? <laughs> When I touch it, it gives forth a sound. It's got wires that vibrate and give music. <laughs> sold. See, You've sold it to me there. <laughs> see, the thing I... The, the, this is a thing I love about uh, fanzines. This, and this is... Um, it, like my Daily Star did have this and some of the others did. Now, at the Cambridge... The Cambridge um, uh, ones that we've looked at... To me, what they're doing is kind of replicating what was going on in mainstream magazines, sort mm. of writing articles, etc. Yeah. I think where fanzines are interesting is where they have a touch of the personal. So people yeah. developing personal ideas and giving, instilling them with a bit of personality. Mm. It, it's that tribal thing, isn't it? That tribal exchange. Yeah, yeah. And music, 
it's part of it, isn't it? Sort yeah, of prog, yeah. prog, progs, RPGs, and prog at one point went sort of hand in hand. Yeah, you know, a certain generation of role players, prog was the thing, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, Rick Wakeman in his pointy wizard hat, you know, yeah. played whilst you were pretending you were wearing a pointy wizard hat, being a wizard. But I think it's a it's an important point, isn't it? When uh, fanzines find their own voice. Mm. Okay, let's uh, have a look at this next one. This is. Um, uh, Tassarian uh, Tolkien fanzine so not particularly about gaming oh, no. okay. and, and this is from uh, Graham Kinningsberg Tassarian a Tolkien fanzine everyone listening will have had a gateway author or perhaps a game that will have introduced them to the world of geekdom for a small group of friends in Greenock in the west of Scotland at the very dawn of the 80s that author was the undisputed Lord of Fantasy Fiction himself, J.R.R. R. Tolkien. Whoa, 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 hang on a minute. <laughs> it is disputed, isn't it? It is disputed. We dispute we it. We dispute it. Anyway, let's get back on to what he has to say. <laughs> Thus was born Tassarian, a humble little offering to go alongside those other grown-up publications. The production details are practically lost in memory, but I do remember the struggles with such archaic tech as a be-ribboned manual typewriter, pritch stick, tipex and ancient photocopiers. Issue 2, seemingly lost to history, was cranked out on something called a distetna, which I remember being as hideous to use as it names sounds tripping off the tongue. However, our surviving issues are in surprisingly good condition, so he must have done something right, and I'm pleased to notice that the quality of the issues did improve. As for the content, well, please bear in mind our age. While we may squirm a little, okay, a lot, reading back now, we do so rather pleased and proud that we made the effort to give vent to our fledgling imaginations and creativity. Now, this is a a great, great little uh, set of... uh, Fanzines that uh, Graves provided for us because yeah. you got to remember that they were only twelve when they, they were twelve, and I, I do like the little personal introductions or bio notes that they each put in, which are, I really kind of quite endearing, aren't they? Yeah, you know, there's a kind of there's a real honesty to them, and I think at one point he says he's a he's a wizard of second level, and that's pretty good going, you know. <laughs> Not exactly a power gamer. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also a, a quiz in here, so let's uh, yeah. let's see if you can do it. Okay, okay go on. A Tolkien quiz. A Tolkien oh, quiz. No, uh, don't do this to me. Uh, you see, I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm just going to happen now, don't you? Oh, I'm going to look like one of those celebrities on Celebrity the Chase or Celebrity Pointless, where everyone's shouting the answer and they don't know the <laughs> answer. You know. Yeah. Well, let's let's have a go at this. Okay, okay. Who was? You play along at home. You want? Do, oh, do play along at home. They shout, they'll shout the answers. Yeah. We do, we're doing it. First question, go on. Who was Findigil? Who was Findigil? Who was Findigil? Mm. Um, Elrond's brother. Elrond's <laughs> brother. Okay. Don't laugh like that. It could <laughs> be. I'll get you the answer. Go on. Findigil was the king's writer. He made a copy of the Red Book oh, of, course. of the West March. Of course. So give yourself three points if you've got that at home. Well done. 
Okay. <laughs> now, th- this isn't a question, it's more of a statement. This has been set by a 12 year old, hasn't it? <laughs> it has. Yeah. It adds insult to, be- to injury now. Can you beat a 12 year old? Right, <laughs> Easily. With a stick big enough. There you go. Oh, politically correct. I've got my girdle on. It's all right. I have a girdle of uh, postmodern perspective. Okay, here we go. So, this one, it's a, it's a, it comes across as a statement, but I think the question is, what is? Right. Okay. But it, yep. ju- it just says, the sword of Finn Golfin. Um, it's a sword. It is, so I need more detail than that. Oh. You mean, it belongs to or something? Belongs to Elrond. It's Elrond's sword. No. It's not Elrond. Ringo was the sword of Finn Golfin. What? It was the only weapon that wounded Morgoth. Oh, right. okay. There you go. Mm, fair enough. Three points if you got that one. Okay. Oh, you're keeping up. I'll do the last one. Okay. I like this one. What was Grund? What was Grund? Is it Grund or Grund? Grund. I don't know because I don't know. Grund. 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 Go and have a guess. Grund. Elrond's house. Elrond's castle. It's actually the battering ram of Mordor used to break down the doors of Manus Tirith. Uh, okay. Six points for that one. Well done. Did you get extra points for that one? <laughs> That's great. So, <laughs> let's have a look at... Um, last time I struck a note talking about uh, postal games. So, here's a um, frequent contributor, uh, Mike Cool, about his experiences. Okay. Postal games. I did give it a try. I gave it a try twice, hoping to get some sort of support out of the government, which, theoretically at least, wanted all us unemployed people to become entrepreneurs and get off the dole that way. I wanted to do a hand-moderated RPGs. The players would send in up to a page of orders and I'd send back an A4 page of description of what had happened. I used the you are the people from our world plucked into another shtick for a setup. It was much easier than giving them a pile of background and I planned all sorts of things, regular newspapers from the game world so that even if people never met each other's characters they would hear about what they were up to. Like I say, I did it twice, such was my optimism, once with GURPS and once with Over the Edge. And all that's left now is a few moves, a few copies of the newsletters and one of the flyers for the version I called Beyond the Gates of Dream. I never got beyond the playtest stage, so I didn't charge people for it. It soon became clear that I couldn't just sit down at a word processor and produce an A4 of stuff in anything like realistic money-making length of time. Every so often I get the urge to scratch that itch again, probably by running a play-by-post game. I sit on the urge very firmly whenever it emerges again. Mike wasn't one of our only listeners who ran a postal game. Um, We've been sent some great uh, artefacts, newsletters from uh, uh, Ian Brumney of uh, Fenris Games and... uh, Fenris now are magnificent um, model makers. Um, they make figure sculptors and creators of minis and they appear in Sandy Peterson's Cthulhu Walls, amongst other glittering 
uh, credits. But Fenris actually started as a PBM company, and uh, they had four running. But the one I really like is this one. It's called Weird World, mm. and it's inspired by the Spellsinger series of books by Alan Dean Foster, where there's talking animals in fantasy worlds. <laughs> Hamsters, chihuahua berserkers and dwarves in pink bunny suits. Um, and all the way through it, um, Ian's got this kind of self-deprecating tone. Yeah. But it's actually quite innovative. So yes. this was done yeah. in 1988. Yes. The actual mechanics yeah. are... Kind of ahead of the time in a strange way, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. The, the mechanics are describe what you're good at. Mm. You know, so you can say, you know... Um, I'm, I'm fairly good with a with a short sword. Mm. I'm really good with a long sword. I'm crap with a dagger. You know, you could yeah. say could yeah. say those things in your character description, yeah. and they would kind of translate into mechanics. Or, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's very, yeah, very good. I think the only issue I've got with it is you might encounter a giant badger. Yeah, well, you could play a giant badger. I don't badger. want to play a giant badger. You know, certain things are, certain things are ruled out, aren't they? There's a there's a whole series of animals that really can't play a frog. You can't play frog. Can't play frogman, man. No, no, it's only it seems to only be mammals. Doesn't it? Yeah, but it is ahead of its time, really. It's very well produced as well, you know. Yeah, and in some ways, it's it's. I mean, we're going back to the postal gaming thing, aren't we? A little bit touching on this, but um, the fact it's kind of postal game, that that mechanic of describing what you're good at and it not being too crunchy, is is good for a postal game. Yeah, it's one of those things that people. When we used to play postal games, no one ever really twigged that. Everyone used to try and translate crunchy systems into postal games, like we said earlier, we said in the last podcast about D and D. You know, listening at a door and that kind of thing, and exchanging envelopes endlessly to, to discover kind of outcomes. But in this, because it's a bit more fluid, it works. But it would work a bit better through the post, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But it is. It's quite. It's quite an interesting game. Yeah. Okay, before we um, close and go back out of the attic, we need to look at um, this uh, fanzine, because this fanzine is um, an interesting one. It's Drew Crow, mm. um, and it's one that uh, I contributed to. I contributed <laughs> to a, 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 a few fanzines back in my pomp yes. when I was doing the PVM, you know, like uh, David Cassidy holed up in my uh, <laughs> garret. <laughs> Filling in uh, a minor postal game celebrity, yeah, not maybe a major postal game celebrity. And of course, at that point, I was running um, a couple of uh, PBMs, so I thought it'd be a good idea to do more in uh, Drew and Crow, and mm. um, I had a, a couple of them. And so the first one was a Battle Cars game, mm. uh, Killiseum. Okay, and this is this is from from Are you ready for this? Okay, Bolton, two thousand and eighty-seven. <laughs> a ruin not much different from today actually <laughs> of course <laughs> where death is a mere statistic and poverty reigns once again not, not, much, much, life, yeah, not much different from today in the, in the slums societies have grown under the mob rule the Coliseum is the latest in a series of arenas up and down the country which appeals to the masses of demented spectators and illegal duels and to death the new deadly sport of battle cars is here. Um, and they, uh, go on. this is one of the innovations of this. In the middle of the uh, in the middle of the arena is somebody's house. Right? Mm. 
because somebody wouldn't move out. Wouldn't move. So they built the arena. They built it round it. Well, one of those farmers who won't, won't give up the house, they build a motorway around it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, so I'm going, there you go. Some solid black areas are building. This is the home of Mr. R. Slicker. <laughs> when the arena was being built, all the houses on the site were demolished and the occupants moved to alternative property before demolition, obviously. I'm glad I pointed that out. Pointed that out, yeah. However, Mr. Slicker was stubborn and refused to move. So they built the arena around him. Do you know, it sounds like a rubbish game, but I think the idea of a Coliseum as part of Bolton's urban renewal strategy yeah. could be the answer, couldn't it? I mean, they keep building supermarkets and shopping centres, but really, they're missing the trick there, aren't they? A Coliseum is the thing. Send it off to the council. Yeah. <laughs> Highlight that bit. I'll put it in an envelope. Yeah, an envelope. Highlight that bit. The other thing I contributed was um, Brookside the RPG. <laughs> yeah. Brookside the RPG. Now, um, for our uh, younger listeners and mm. for um, listeners in other countries, Brookside was a soap opera, um, or as it can, I insisted it was called, a continuing drama. Continuing drama. Yeah. Yeah. Soap opera. Soap opera. And it was it, it was a breath of fresh air. People forget how innovative it was. Quite radical for a soap opera, wasn't yeah. it? Because it dealt with some issues that it dealt with issues. Well, it did a few things. So first of all, it was kind of social realist in style. So it wasn't. They didn't use a set. It was actual yeah. outdoor location. It was yeah. a, actually in a housing estate mm-hmm. and, and filmed in there. And the other bit that was innovative was that it had young people in it. Yeah. And it had um, kids in it, didn't it? It had kids our age, and that's why we were drawn to it. That's yeah. why... Um, and if you watch, I think... We've got off the point a bit here, but if you if you um, watch a soap opera now, um, a lot of the things in soap operas now were, were really inspired by Brookside, weren't they? Yeah, they were. You know, things yeah. that are normal now, dramatic storylines and stuff like that, were all, were all there in Brookside years ago, weren't yeah, they? There were all sorts of bizarre... <laughs> extreme storylines and so what because um, if, if kids appeared in uh, soap operas back in, you know, in yeah. early, they'd always be upstairs playing wouldn't they but well it was like Tracy Barlow wasn't it yeah. in, in Coronation Street I think, I think Ken sent her upstairs to a room one night she came back down ten years later she was 26 <laughs> and played by a different actress okay <laughs> So I'll, I'll read a bit of this. Okay. Um, Do I need to tighten the girdle of? I, I think I was. Now <laughs> you've got to bear in mind. You've got to bear in mind that this is my sixteen-year-old self here. We're looking at. We're mocking. Yeah, sixteen. And it's also bearing in mind that I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Absolutely nothing to do with it. Okay. This is from uh, apparently. This is from terribly stupid and rotten ink. Right? TSR. Terribly oh, stupid. very good, yeah. 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 Come, Ed, you soft melt and play the game. Okay. In Brookside, the role-playing game, you control characters from the programme. Due to your limited imagination, we've decided to conform <laughs> to TSR policy, as demonstrated in Marvel Super Earholes. Earholes. Very good. And, words. Yeah. And Indiana Jones by making you play pre-generated characters. <laughs> Unlike Indiana Jones, you can die. <laughs> okay. 
in Brookside, there's a high chance you will. Yeah, You'd be murdered. Good. It was a bit like Game of Thrones, wasn't it? It was. It was Game, it was Game of Thrones set in a, clo- a cul-de-sac in Liverpool. Yeah. Imagine such a thing. Filmed by Ken Loach. Yeah. Because <laughs> that, that, was, that was the thing. <laughs> <laughs> In it as well, it was like the whole strata of society, wasn't it? So yes. you'd move around the clothes and they'd have different people. Yeah. So these are some of the characters. Even, even though, it, you know, in, in that, it, that wouldn't be the case, would it? You wouldn't get poor, really poor people no. living next door to really well, wealthy people. But wasn't it like an emerging aspirant working class? Yes, it was. So it was like aspirational. Yeah, Bobby Grant. and all that, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's a sign of the times. Right, yeah. okay. I'm going to read this. And Go on. I apologise now. I've got my girdle on. It's, I'm d- I had nothing to do with it. Okay. <clears throat> the Collins family. Paul Collins. Three in, uh, in brackets. I don't know what the three what stands for. What does the three stand for? I don't know. Alignment. Ruddy fascist. <laughs> Some. Answer. Some of some German guy who started World War II. Thinks I'm Mrs Thatcher. Maybe God was on the dole until he bought a Tebbit bicycle and found work at Petrochem, where he's trying to sack everyone. Fascist. (laughs) (laughs) Did you write it? Rick from the Young Ones. (laughs) Receives turkeys as bribes. What is that? I don't understand. Was that that something in the... It must have been. It must have been. It doesn't make sense, that. No. Okay. Gordon Collins. Okay. Alignment. Poof. Oh, I, I was 16. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, don't judge yeah. me. Well, I think we. Grandson of a German who started the Second World War. He has a face like a pan of worms and everyone ignores him. I'm sorry about that. But I'm wearing a girl. Yes. All right. <laughs> Next one, the, the crosses. Now, the crosses were like uh, elderly. They were elderly, elderly people, weren't yeah, they? Yeah. Cross, alignment, grumpy draws. The closest answer to Mr. T. Senile delinquent who wears his huge <laughs> who wears huge glasses with lenses like jam jar bottoms. Ex commando who hates everybody. Okay. Edna Cross two. Alignment Wimp. Edna is played by an actress who's appeared in lots of programmes as an old woman ever since she was sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> True, actually, that wasn't that. She's using everything as an old lady. Edna is a compulsive gambler who will do anything from Russian roulette to running across the M6 for a bet. <laughs> <laughs> She's having a love affair with a man from Tibet. Uh, is she? Was she? I don't remember that. Yeah. You've made some of this up, haven't you? Yeah. So that's uh, that's uh, Brookside and the role playing game. So nobody, nobody responded to it. Did no response to it? No. Quite right. I think people thought it was um, a joke. A joke. Sort of, sort of is, isn't it? It is, yeah. It is really. I don't know I'd have done anything with it. Like yeah, that. what would you have done? What <laughs> like scenario would you have come up with? There's no rule system or anything. Just, just stupidity, isn't it? Yeah, gen- general stupidity. General stupidity. So let's um, tidy all these up. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to. Uh, people have kindly provided some examples from the pages of fanzines. And I'm going to put them up on the uh, on, on the site, thegrognardfiles.com, over the next few weeks so people can see uh, what's up there. So, until next time, Blindy, see you later. Okay, see you, Doc. Bye. There isn't a last bit. 
Thanks again to Ian for a tremendous, insightful and fun interview. Thanks to Daily Dwarf, Green Kinneberg, Hyperlectic, Mike Cool, Ian Brumney and James Holloway for sharing their zine memories. Look out for scrapbooks to be posted on the grognarfiles.com over the coming weeks, showing sample pages from the zines mentioned. Rob Knott of the Lankmar Daily Star has written a longer piece about his experiences as a zine editor that will be appearing in the next Grognard File zine. We're currently hard at work pulling together this year's zine, ready to be launched in November. As well as Rob's contribution, there's articles from Ken Saint-André, Kihar of Dissecting Worlds podcast, Phil the Dice Mechanic, there's art from Liz Danforth, Russ Nicholson, and a collaboration between Wayne Peters and Paul Coburn. There's a Call of Cthulhu adventure, and a Judge Dredd scenario, and much, much more. The zine will be posted to Patreons anywhere in the world in December. The Patreon campaign funds these projects and helps to cover some of the podcast costs. If you'd like to join the Grog Squad, why not click the link in the show notes to find out more. You have until the end of September 2017 to join and get a hard copy. If you join after that, you'll get a PDF. But these things have to hold and flick through, surely, aren't they? If you'd like to download a PDF of the last Grogzine produced last year and the collected Daily Dwarf, then check out the link to Drive Through RPG. It's now there as a pay what you want with all proceeds collected going to YSDC to support their church roof fund so they can continue doing great projects to support Cthulhu fan activity. So far, we've downloaded 100 and raised $20. We can do better than that, surely. Why not give it a try? There's been a number of new patrons joining this month, and I'll be doing a special round of thanks next time and we'll be virtually giving $5 backers a spy-fi gadget from the Q Manual from Victory Games and the James Bond role-playing game. Dirk the Dice will return in Fishfinger. Until then, adios, amigos. <laughs>